there. Uh, let me just remind you where we are. Let me remind you that we've just uh, come through these uh, great occasions for celebration. We've, we've just come through Easter and then uh, Ascension and then after Ascension, Pentecost. And, and you know, last week we kind of went into overtime. And, um, I, you know, I'm sorry, but I just uh, can't seem to get out from under the kind of the, the holy blessedness of reflecting upon these great and mighty acts of redemption that God has accomplished in Jesus. Now, we enter uh, this Sunday in the church year, we enter uh, what is referred to as ordinary time. Now, you know, it's ordinary because, because for the next several months there, there aren't any of these great redemptive acts to celebrate. It's all behind us. You know, out there in front of us is the, is the new year, that begins with Advent and then it leads to the whole of the rest of this complex of things by which God redeems us and is redeeming the whole world. But for this next little period of time, there aren't any of those big events, so they call it ordinary time. But let me tell you something, folks. It is anything but ordinary. And it is anything but ordinary precisely because of the things that we've just celebrated. The resurrection of Jesus, the ascension and enthronement of the king, and the clothing of the church with power. With power. And so it's in that connection that I want us to look at Luke chapter 10, because Luke chapter 10 is a defining passage for the church, for us. For this little group of people here. For me as I go to Tanzania. For David Jones as he goes back to California. For Brent Webster as he goes back to California. For Tom and Jen Cunningham as they go back to Orlando. For my daughter Katie as she goes back to Atlanta. For you as you leave this place and go out into the world. This passage is a defining passage. It's a prolepsis. Good word. Look that up in your Funkin' Wagnalls. It's a foreshadowing. It's an anticipation of something. And again, I'm not here to pick fights, okay? But what we're reading about here is a conquering king. And what we're reading about here is a conquering king dethroning and decapitating an enemy. So listen. Listen. At verse 17 of Luke chapter 10. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now look, if you go back up to the first 12 or 13 verses of this passage, they're doing all kinds of cool stuff. They're healing people. People are being restored. All of these things that are evidences of the presence of the king and the presence of the kingdom. But the thing that gives them joy as they come back to Jesus is this. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, help us as we come to your word. Encourage our hearts. Open our eyes. Help us to see unseen things, things we can't touch or taste or feel or smell, but these realities that are every bit as real as the reality that we can see and taste and touch and feel and smell. Open our eyes to see this, O God, and encourage the hearts of your people as we head out from this place to those things to which you've called us out there in the midst of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So three things that come out of this. Not surprised, are you? Three things. Three things that come out of this passage, which is a kind of a defining, foreshadowing, prefiguring, and frankly energizing passage for the church. This passage tells us what we have, this passage tells us what to expect, and this passage tells us about the most important thing. Okay? Those three things. What we have, what we can expect, and what is the greatest or the most important thing. It's the first thing. What do we have? What do we have, brothers and sisters, my friends, fellow ministers of the gospel? What do we have? We have the gospel of the kingdom. We have the gospel of the kingdom. Mike, I didn't see you standing there when I pointed out all these other people. This applies to you, too, when you go to the Gifford Youth Activity Center or to Gifford Middle School, okay? We have the gospel of the kingdom. You have to look at verses 1 through 12 to see this. So let me read this for you really quickly. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, and boy, there's a ton to comment on here that we just don't have time for. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. You're going resourceless, at least from a human material perspective. You're going without resources. No money, no knapsack, no luggage, no sandals. And, and don't let anybody distract you as you make your way down the road. There's purpose in this. Stay focused. Don't be drawn off into conversations and distractions that would take you away from the business at hand. See, there's a lot here. Carry no money, no knapsack, no sandals. Greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, say, first, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. Remain in that house, eating and drinking what they provide. The laborer deserves his wages. Don't go from house to house. Whenever you a new t enter a new town and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick in it, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. 
But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. What do they go with? What are, the, what are these 72 entrusted with? They're entrusted with an announcement. They're to go to these towns and whether they're received or rejected, they're to say the same thing. The kingdom has drawn near to you. The kingdom has drawn near to you. Now when the 72 go out, they're doing the very thing that Jesus did. And it's interesting that the verb in the text that's translated here, the, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The, the, the verb in the text suggests it's something that comes and stays and has lasting consequences. It, it, the, when the kingdom comes, it comes as something that doesn't appear and then disappear. It comes and it stays. And it has lasting consequences. And even beyond that, it becomes the thing that defines a new order of reality. That's, that's what's packed into that little verb that's translated has come. Has come near to you. Has drawn near to you. Is at hand. It comes. It's here. It doesn't disappear. It has consequences. Those consequences remain. And it becomes the defining reality in the midst of all the other realities. That's what the 72 are entrusted with. And it's the very same thing that Jesus announced, that Jesus proclaimed when he came, when his ministry began. If you, if you go back to Mark, the first chapter, verses 14 and 15, there, Mark 1, 14 and 15 are the theme verses for Mark's gospel. Hey, you want to know what Mark's gospel is about? There's, the, there's the, the prologue stuff, the preliminary stuff, the stuff that introduces the main character of the story, the one whose coming was prophesied by Isaiah and Micah and all the rest. But when you get to verses 14 and 15, after John has completed his ministry, then you get the, then you get the theme verse, the theme verses for the Gospel of Mark. And here's what they are, verses 14 and 15. After John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, what's gospel? You know what gospel is, right? One, two, three. What is gospel? One, two, three. Good news. Great good news. Evangelion. A, a great announcement. A wonderful announcement. A supremely good announcement. What is the gospel? And I love in Mark 1, 14 and 15 that it's called the gospel of God you love that? It's the gospel of God. It's not Paul's gospel. It's not Peter's gospel. It's not my gospel. I love that. It originates with God. Now, you, you ask the question, it's the gospel of God. Well, is it the gospel that comes from God or is it the gospel about God? You can translate it either way. You don't have to choose. It's both. It's the gospel, that, it's good news that comes from God, and it is about God. And how is that gospel defined? Jesus defines it. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And what is that gospel? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. It has come. It's the same verb 
in Mark 1 that you find in Luke 10. It's come. It's here. It's begun. It's come. It stays. It has consequences. And those consequences are the defining realities in the midst of all the other realities around us. It's the same message that Jesus proclaimed when he came. The coming of the gospel of the kingdom of God. The good news of the kingdom of God. Now, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't want to pick a fight. I mean, again, I'm not about picking fights. But we think so often about the gospel and the good news very personally and individually, right? The gospel's about me and Jesus. You know, it's just... It's, an, it's just kind of another illustration of how fundamentally and essentially narcissistic I am. The gospel's all about Jesus, to be sure, but it's all about Jesus and me. You know, it's, it, and, and everything that you know, that you've come to understand about the gospel, touching you personally is absolutely true. All of those wonderful blessings that we looked at last week when we looked at Ephesians 1, all of those spiritual blessings that God has given to us in Jesus, new life and, and justification. What is just, What is this big word? Justification. The children's catechism is so helpful. Question 50 in this little thing that we used to use with our kids. What is justification? Just take this home with you and, and think about it over the week to come. Justification is God's forgiving sinners and treating them as if they had never sinned, ever. And adoption, J.I. Packer in Knowing God says the highest blessing of the Christian life is not justification. That's sort of the base blessing. The highest blessing of the gospel is your adoption. You're a son, you're a daughter, you're a child of the King of Kings, all of those blessings and, and more besides, all of those things, all of those ways in which the infinite personal God has secured your salvation for you personally. That's at the heart of the gospel. It's not less than that, but it's more. It's more. It's so much bigger than Jesus and me. It's the gospel of the kingdom. It's the announcement that a king has come. That a king has brought a kingdom with him. And the presence of that kingdom in the midst of the world makes all the difference in the world. And it's the announcement of that kingdom that has been entrusted to the 72. And the evidence of the presence of the kingdom is their works of mercy, their ministries of mercy, as they do what Jesus did, as they heal, as they restore, as they mend what is broken. That's half the reason I'm going to Tanzania. Is, is so that by the grace of God, somehow, because of your commissioning and your generosity and the generosity of others, real compassion might be seen. The difference of the gospel might be seen in a place that needs that mercy and compassion. Where things begin to be made straight and where the, the broken begins to be put back together and where the captives are set free and the, and the heartbroken are bound up. And where real physical water goes to places where it doesn't exist 
so that people don't have to hike. Women don't have to hike one and three and five miles in one direction to a water source to bring water back to their families. That's the kind of thing as evidence of the presence of the kingdom that the 72 did. So what do we have? What are we entrusted with? We're entrusted with this announcement, this heralding, this telling of the presence of the kingdom of God. Now, what should we expect as a result? And this is where it really, really becomes fun. This is where it really becomes fun. Again, verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. When the king comes and the king inaugurates his kingdom, the king comes, as I prayed in that prayer of dedication, that king comes as a warrior king making an assault on the kingdom of evil and darkness. And by his coming into the world and by his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension to the right hand of the Father and his clothing the church with power, he is making an assault upon the kingdom of darkness and evil. And when the 72 come back and report to Jesus, what we are getting is this proleptic, prophetic, anticipatory look at what will be characteristic of the ministry of the church across this whole period of history, all flowing out of the work of the king who comes as a warrior king. And why does he come? He comes in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Remember Genesis 3.15? Those of you who've been around here for a while, what is it? It's the seminal promise of the Bible. It's the first promise. And what is that seminal promise? It's spoken in the context of a word of judgment. God speaking to the serpent and saying, here's what is going to happen. He is going to crush your head. You are going to bruise his heel. But in the in the setting, in the midst of his heel being bruised, he will crush your head. He will destroy you. That's the seminal verse. That's the verse that sets the trajectory for the whole of the rest of the Old Testament and begins to find its fulfillment in the arrival of the warrior king. And again, if you read Mark's Gospel, the first miracle that Jesus performs, have you heard me say this before? I don't remember where I say these things all the time. The first miracle that Jesus performs is the miracle of delivering a demon-possessed man. Why is that? That is Jesus' statement. Before principalities and powers in heavenly places, before the unseen host, that is Jesus' way of saying, game on. Game on. Let's have at it. And when the 72 come back, they marvel. They marvel most, not at healings, not at restorations, 
They marvel most and are overjoyed the most by the fact that demonic forces in the name, by the authority, the power of Jesus are subject to them, even them. And Jesus then says in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now I don't have time to unpack that whole thing. But here's what Jesus is saying. He is saying, game is on. And the ruler of this world is being dethroned. He is being taken down. I mean, this is the ultimate smackdown for those of you who watch that stuff. This is the ultimate cosmic smackdown. This is the king of glory seeing that his power, his authority entrusted to the 72 by which the 72 are clothed. His power, his authority is having its desired effect. And evil and darkness and wickedness is being dethroned. Now, I have to tell you, um, I mean, I, this is a kind of a eureka thing. You know, you know what eureka means? Right? I found it. Woo, wow, I found it. Surprise. Now, there's a sense in which I'm not surprised, but you know this experience. We've talked about these, this thing. You know how when you read your Bible, you come to a verse you've read a thousand times, and you see, if you feel like it's, it wasn't in your Bible before. It wasn't there before. Well, this idea has been here. Okay? I've read it. You've read it. But this is absolutely electrifying to me, energizing for me, fills me, I have to tell you, fills me with incredible hope. I'm not a triumphalist. Right? Jesus, as he sends the 72 out, he, he basically tells them, some folks are going to like you, some folks are going to hate you. Some folks will receive you, some folks will reject you. Doesn't matter. Message is the same. King has come. Kingdom is inaugurated. Kingdom is here. The defining thing has happened. Game on. And by the heralding of this, by the heralding of this, the evil one is dethroned and decapitated. You've seen a chicken with its head cut off, right? Runs around like it's still alive. Still decapitated. And this makes so much sense. It makes so much sense to me of so many passages in the Scriptures. This idea that the king, when he comes, inaugurates the kingdom and begins this work of dethroning and decapitating the evil adversary and overcoming all of the powers and forces of darkness. Just ahead in Luke chapter 11, there is Luke's narrative of Jesus casting out a demon and then being challenged, Luke 11 verse 15, by some who were present who say that Jesus is casting out demons by the prince of demons. And Jesus goes on to tell this story here in Luke 11, just as he does in Mark 4 and just as he does in Matthew's gospel. And the story is basically this. Here's a strong man. He's got a bunch of stuff in his house. He's a strong man. He defends the stuff in his house. How can you possibly, how can you possibly get the stuff from the strong man unless you first 
bind that strong man. Go read it. Mark 4, Luke 11. What is Jesus saying? The stronger man has come. There's a strong man. He's got a house. You know what he has in his house? The nations imprisoned in darkness, held in bondage. But the stronger man has come and he's burst down the door and he's reaching into that dungeon and he is rescuing people out of that darkness. The stronger man has come and he is bound and is binding the strong man and making an advance, a repeated assault upon the kingdom of darkness. Romans 16, verse 20. How do you make sense of Romans 16, verse 20? After Paul's gone through this list of all these people who are in Rome, names he knows, he gets to verse 20 of Romans 16 and says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now look, people read that and they think Paul's confused. They think he's confused. You know, poor Paul, poor naive Paul, he thought the day of Jesus' return was right around the corner, and so he's saying that soon. Satan will be corrupt. But look at what he says, Romans 16, 20. Under whose feet? The Christians in Rome. The Christians in Rome. Under your feet. Who knows how many there were? This is the capital city of worldly power. This is the most important city on the planet. This is Washington, D.C. The gospel has been in Rome for a handful of years. There can't be that many Christians there. Right? Just like there aren't at Gifford Middle School, just like there aren't at Stanford, just like there aren't at UCAL Berkeley, just like there aren't in a whole lot of places. And God says, no, to those of you who are there, get this straight. The king has come. The king has inaugurated his kingdom. The kingdom's presence is the defining reality in the whole of human history among all of the other realities. And the king, through the church and the preaching of the gospel, is crushing Satan under your feet. Under your feet. The gospel dethrones. The gospel decapitates. And that's what we may expect. That's what we may expect. Just one more. 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Now that becomes a proof text for apologetics, and I'm happy that it's a proof text for apologetics. But please don't restrict that passage to being a proof text for these sort of verbal exchanges that Christians get into with non-Christians. What Paul is talking about is this reality that he is so enamored of, so captivated by, that the king has come. And the king, by inaugurating his kingdom, is fulfilling Genesis 3.15, and Paul, as a minister of the gospel, in his preaching and heralding the truth of the gospel of the kingdom, 
is destroying strongholds. Destroying strongholds. Now, this is the same letter. If you go back to the first few chapters, this is the same letter in which Paul, and really throughout the letter, focuses on what? His own weakness. His own perplexities. His own frailties. It's a letter that's characterized by Paul's weakness personally, and yet this extraordinary confidence in the power of the gospel to take down strongholds. That's what Jesus was saying to the 72. Don't take money, don't take a knapsack, don't take sandals, don't be distracted. Go in weakness so that so that it will be most apparent to you and to everybody else that the power is not yours. That the power is the power of the risen Jesus Christ in the heralding of the gospel of the kingdom. Colossians 2.15, he says he has disarmed rulers and authorities. He has put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Who has done this? God the Father has done this. He has disarmed rulers. He has disarmed authorities. He has put them to open shame. He's made a public spectacle of them. You know what generals used to do, conquering generals? They would strip the vanquished naked. That's what they do. And then they'd take them back into their own capital city and show them off as the fruit of their conquest. That's what God That's what God is saying has happened at the cross. He's stripped him naked. He's made a public spectacle of him. He's exposed him. I don't mean to be inappropriate. He's exposed him for who and what he is. Who has done it? God the Father has done it. Colossians 2.15, how has he done it? He has done it in him, in Jesus. And here's the deal. God continues to do this in Jesus Christ, through the church, in the church, through, through these spiritual weapons, through these weapons of warfare, the principle of which is the heralding, the proclaiming, the announcing, the declaring, the telling of the gospel of the kingdom. Now, what are we engaged in here, right? Philip Hughes has this has a wonderful comment on the Second Corinthians passage. If I, let me just read this. This is for all of us. This is it's very insightful, but it's tremendously challenging and tremendously important for us. This is what he writes: Only the panoply of God will serve for this purpose of slaying the Philistine giant. Only spiritual weapons are divinely powerful for the overthrow of the fortresses of evil. This constitutes an admonition to the church and particularly to her leaders, Zach and Glenn and Jim and Andy and me and and you ministers of the gospel here, particularly to its leaders, for the temptation is ever present to meet the challenge of the world which is under the sway of the evil one with the carnal weapons of this world. 
That's the constant challenge. Is to stick my finger up into the wind and ask, what does the world want me to do? Now look, we've got to be sensitive to what's around us. We do our services in English. We don't do them in Latin. You know what I mean? But you hear what he's saying. Not only do such weapons fail to make an impression on the strongholds of Satan. Boy, is that a statement worth commenting on. These weapons, these worldly weapons, may make an impression upon the worldly, but they make no impression at all upon the strongholds of Satan. Not only do such weapons fail to make an impression on the strongholds of Satan, but a secularized church is a church which having adopted the standards of the world, has ceased to fight and is herself overshadowed by the powers of darkness. Look, this is tricky stuff, folks. We've got to be sensitive to our culture. We've got to listen to the world around us. We've got to be engaged, not retreating. You know, I, we, don't, we don't want to do this. We don't want to retreat into this kind of holy huddle thing. We've got to be out there. We've got to know people. We've got to listen to people. We've got to hear people. But we've got to remember... The one thing that makes the assault on the kingdom of darkness that dethrones and decapitates the evil one is the heralding of the gospel of the kingdom in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Hughes is reminding us of. So what should we expect? And what do I plead with you that you pray for, for me, for the next two weeks? Please, plead with God for an outpouring of the Spirit of God on a poor attempt to herald the gospel of the kingdom. It's the only hope anybody has. So what do we have? We have the gospel of the kingdom. What should we expect? We should expect that Christ in the heralding of the gospel of the kingdom in his time, in his way, according to his sovereign and good and wise purposes, he will continue to dethrone, I love it, dethrone and decapitate the enemy of our souls. But now what's the greater thing? What's the greater thing? This is, uh, this is worth a sermon in itself. The greater thing, Luke 10 Jesus reminds his disciples, verse 20, as they're rejoicing in the dethroning and the decapitating of the, of the serpent, of the evil one, he's reminding them, verse 20, that there's a greater thing about which to rejoice, and that is that your names are written in heaven. That your names are written in heaven. There are good things there are great things, but there are even greater things. And I must tell you, as a minister of the gospel, it is such a, it is such a temptation. It is such a temptation to find my greatest pleasure, my greatest joy, and my deepest sorrows in the success or failure of the ministry of the gospel. But come success or failure, Jesus is telling me, rejoice in this one thing. Your name is written in the Father's book of life, and it's written in indelible ink, never to be erased. I've got to read one more passage, if I could. It's from 
the sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones from Ephesians chapter 2. Let me just read this for you. He writes, as he reflects on the gospel and the significance of the gospel, the significance of the cross, he writes this, I suppose that the thing that is the most staggering of all is to grasp and to realize, if we can, the amazing fact that the three persons in the blessed Holy Trinity so loved us as to do all this for us. Self-subsistent, eternally existing in that ineffable unity and glory, yet concerned about us. The Father eternal has his eye on you. And he knows you and he is interested in you. The Son of God has so loved you that he has given himself for you. And the Holy Spirit so loves you that he comes into you, taking up residence within you to apply all this blessed work and to work it all out in and through you. Is there anything beyond this? That I am told that these persons have not only loved me, but have acted in this way in order that I might be redeemed. If we but realize this as we ought, in effect upon us would be the effect upon us would be tremendous. It would revolutionize our whole concept of Christianity. We've been entrusted with the gospel. We may expect the dethroning and decapitating of the enemy of our souls in the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. But the greatest of all the things is that the triune God of heaven and earth has loved you, laid hold of you, made you his own, and will never, ever lose you. You are his sons and daughters. And your names are written in his book. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, there's so much here, so much to comfort and encourage and help us. And I pray so much for my brothers and sisters, for my friends here, that they would be encouraged by these things. Oh God, go with us as we go out into this world. And now come and meet with us by your spirit as we gather at this table to enjoy fellowship with you and a taste of the glories to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.